0: You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. We connect with Dr. Chris Smith this afternoon. That's the Naked Scientist where you can ask him any science related question. Chris, hello. Hello. Good to be with you again. Um, there are a couple of questions already streaming. Some of them are old and some of them are... Uh, uh, new. So let me just fulfill a promise I made last week on a question that came in. Sam in Tembisa is wrapping me over the knuckles. He asked last week, if I left Earth today and returned a billion years later, and there has been no extinction, extinction level event on Earth, will I find human beings that have evolved into something barely recognizable today from the people I left behind?
1: I think it's almost certainly true that you would expect to see some changes, yeah, because if you think about how long we've been here on, on Earth as, as the human race, we've been here for really the blink of an eye's time. The, the first anatomically modern humans appeared within the last million years, probably within the last third of a million years, and you're talking about there something that, which is a billion years, which is a thousand million and so therefore you you're talking about a significantly longer period of time and so i think earth would have changed quite a bit and people would have changed quite a bit but knowledge would have continued to advance so i suspect they'd still be able to communicate with you but uh, they they would probably look a little bit different uh, not not grossly so. different because we're well optimized to our environment but i think we we almost certainly would have would have moved on and evolved to really exist in the most effective way in the environment that we've made in the future. And and that will almost certainly be a more urbanised environment, a more populated environment, perhaps an environment ravaged by climate change. Let's hope not. But I, I, I fear that will be the case to an extent. So certainly we, we will have evolved in some respects, certainly socially.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, Sam, there's your answer. Um, so, give us a call now on 011 883 with your science related question for uh, Dr. Chris Smith. Margaret, that's what you've done. You're calling us from Randburg. Good afternoon. Hi. Um, Dr. Chris, hi. I wonder
1: if you hi, can call me. Um, hi. There. <laughs> can you have the COVID vaccine if you have frontal
0: lobe epilepsy? I mean, would there be any reaction?
1: Uh, Margaret, there should be none. Uh, frontal lobe epilepsy is, is merely refers to the fact that there is a focus that can cause fits in that part of the brain. And the only exception here would be if someone's on certain drugs or something that has a known interaction with the vaccines. I'm not aware of any interactions between the drugs that people take to control their epilepsy and the vaccines that we are using. And therefore, I would say it's a very good idea to go ahead and get your vaccine. Uh, as whoever it is that you're referring to who happens to have epilepsy.
0: There you go, Margaret. Oh, so good idea. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks for your help. Thank you. Pleasure. We're taking your calls on zero one one eight eight three zero seven zero two for your science curiosities for the Naked Scientist. So uh, here's another one. It's coming in via voice note. Take a listen, Chris. Good afternoon, Naza, and your guest. I've got a question. You see where i come from there are these two villages next to each other now the kids there they have brown teeth and that has been happening over over 30 years you know and it's a concern for me i don't know if there's something in the water or what because we drink the same water and our teeth are like that they are brown and they don't last very long then there's decay and stuff if I don't know, did you ask the, the, your guest uh, what could be the cause? Okay. Thank two. you. Thank you for that. So brown teeth, and of course, then the subsequent dental issues that arise.
1: Mm, interesting observation. Of course, one issue we're trying to tie cause and is it's very easy to be confused or caught out by what we call confounding factors. Now okay. it might be that in fact these two these these two villages tend to eat the same food and that food might be very high in sugar which might be causing the tooth decay but you could say oh well they're drinking something in the water it's the water that's doing it everyone's drinking water but the water's an innocent bystander it will come down to what's causing the decay And whether newcomers to the village, so if people move into the village from a totally different part of the country and they they move in, if they then develop the same problem. If it's just a dietary problem, that can be changed and that's relatively easy to solve. It would be be interesting to find out whether, and the reason I'm saying newcomers is, of course, they won't have been exposed to anything before. Mm -hmm. And then they come to the area and then they develop the problem. It argues it's something to do with the area or an exposure within that area. But I, I'm strongly suspicious that it's going to be, especially if it's uh, everybody is just getting teeth that, that tend to decay. It's probably a dietary thing, and perhaps low fluorid, fluoride exposure. Fluoride is the best thing you can do to keep robust, strong teeth because it forms a very strong mineral um, called fluoroapetite with mm-hmm. the calcium phosphate in your teeth, and it's one of the hardest substances we know. And when you brush your teeth with a fluoride-laced toothpaste or you drink water that's got fluoride in it, it binds onto the matrix of your tooth and reinforces it with this fluoroapatite hard molecule. And uh, therefore the best way if you're if you're at risk of tooth decay is to do that. Some people do have uh, the combination of genes that mean they have weaker teeth and the environment which makes their teeth more likely to decay. It could be that there's a combination of both factors going on here.
0: Right, okay, so uh, the, the absence of fluoride, are you saying that's what could contribute to the browning of the teeth? Fluoride
1: normally makes your teeth go brown a bit. It tends to make a mottling colour. So one of the payoffs for fluoridation of of your teeth, although you protect your teeth, they do tend to be a bit darker. But obviously, if you don't have enough fluoride exposure, Mm -hmm. then you tend to get teeth that go brown and decayed because they're less hard and resilient and robust and they're more easily attacked by acids Mm -hmm. in your mouth. And the acids in your mouth come from the bacteria in your mouth that degrade sugars in your diet. So if you drink a lot of sweet things... Um sugar fruit juice, sugar drinks eat a lot of sugar containing foods then you tend to select for the bacteria in your mouth that are very good at breaking down sugar but the bacteria Great. break it down into acids and those acids then erode your teeth
0: got you uh, next we've got Steve in Lone Hill Hello Steve Good day how are you good how are you good thanks Chris, I wanted to ask you something that's been on my mind a long time so In all the vehicles I've ever driven over the last 20 years, if I fill the tank to first click or 100% full, if I drive on the open road to, say, Cape Town or in the city even, I always get a certain amount of mileage when the needle says that I've got half a tank. But I can never get that same mileage out of the second half of the tank. So Mm -hmm. the car's lighter. Why should I not get exactly the same amount of kilos? For example, first half, 400. I should end on 800 before I run out of fuel. So... Are the, all the gauges not calibrated for some funny reason?
1: Wow. Yeah, I've I've noticed this as well. And the thing is that uh, then these are not sort of life depends on aviation standard gauges. These are yeah. fairly cheap car gauges which are there to make sure that people don't have a problem. And they tend to overcompensate. So when they say the tank's empty... There's plenty swishing around in the bottom most of the time because they mm. want to make sure that people tend to have got the message and gone to the garage to get a fill-up before they get to the end of the tank. Also, you don't yeah. want to suck in all the crap that's at the bottom because then you'll suck a lot of that into the filter and block your filter up as well. So that's the other reason for deterring people from really running the tank down if you can avoid it. But I think it's because tanks are funny shapes, they're not properly calibrated, and the way that those those measures often work is a float uh, sort of flotation system mm-hmm. that knows how far up the tank the fuel level is but the tank is is not a perfect shape and so then it's just a not a very accurate readout for most of those vehicles whereas in some vehicles where it really matters what your fuel burn rate is and how much fuel you've got on board and so on they know very precisely how much fuel they have put in because it's metered in and then it's metered out uh, so that they have a much more accurate idea but in in your average car with your average gauge every time you go over a speed bump uh, or a pothole in Joburg, let's say. <laughs> you, you're yeah. going to massively, massively perturb the fuel level in the tank, and so the gauge is going to swing all over the place all the time. So they're probably damped, and they're, and they're damped very conservatively as well.
0: Are you making fun of us in our potholes?
1: I've I've <laughs> nearly lost so many tires driving round <laughs> Joburg.
0: <laughs> well, Steve, thank you. Thank you for thank that question, pardon. Steve. All right. Aaron, you're calling in from Mamilodi. Hello. Yeah, Hello, uh, Avania and and Chris. i just like Hi. to find out as to how many kilos just from Earth, if you can to see the curvature of the Earth in terms of kilometres, how far should that be? So how high do you have to go right, to see okay. the curvature? Yes, yes, okay. the height, yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Well, a couple of summers, well, yeah, summer 2019, we actually, we talked about it here on 702, actually. We did a naked scientist experiment where we sent a balloon to the edge of space and we towed up behind this balloon a polystyrene box that was insulated to keep the electronics alive and inside that box were a couple of mobile phones which were looking out on the sky So we could record the video of what they were seeing. We also uh, had a system to play people's screams in space, including some screams from South Africa, uh, to test the theory that no one can hear you scream in space. Now, 33 kilometers is about a third of the way to where we have the, the boundary that officially is where space is said to start. But when we got to thirty kilometers up, we, we actually got to thirty-three kilometers when our balloon finally popped. Mm. But we could see the curvature of the earth very clearly in our footage there. And in fact, if anyone wants to see the pictures, they're gorgeous. What I'll do after this programme, if you follow at Naked Scientists on Twitter, I'll tweet the pictures that we got from about thirty-three kilometers up. And you could you could easily see the beautiful curvature of the Earth and the black of space and the blue. Of the atmosphere below it from that altitude so certainly you don't have to go anything more than a third of the way to space and you can already see this beautiful curve of the earth
0: oh sounds amazing i'll retweet it as well aaron thank you for your question thanks thank you and next we go to frida in midrand hi frida hi how are you Danielle? good and you i'm good i just want to ask the name the naked scientist to, in terms of um, COVID. To say that is there a test that can be done to determine if there are those group of people who cannot, who will never catch the virus? For an example, my husband and I, I got the virus, we are exposed to the same circumstances, but he never got it. Is there a test that can be done that mm-hmm. that would explain why didn't he get the virus? Is there a need for him to yep. get the vaccine if he's not exposed? If he has that. Yes, some kind of protection. Okay. Yeah. Thank you,
1: Frida. Frida, there's a number of possibilities here, and I'll run through them. One possibility is that you didn't have the virus, you had a false positive test and some symptoms, so neither of you have really been exposed, and that's why he didn't get it. Another possibility is that you did have the virus for real, and that he also had the virus for real, but didn't know he had it, and any test he did got it wrong. That's another possibility. Another possibility is that you had the virus and he just didn't catch it. And a a final possibility is that you had the virus, but because he'd already had the virus, he didn't catch it. Uh, In other words, he'd already had it and he was now immune. Now, how do we sort this one out? Well, one way, and it's not perfect or foolproof, because unfortunately, when you do these sorts of tests, the tests aren't perfect and also the thing they're looking for isn't there forever. But what you can do is look for antibodies. These are called serological assays. And when a person has an infection with something, if you take a sample of blood, you can look in the blood plasma. And if a person has been exposed to something, they will have made antibodies against that thing. And you can look in the blood plasma for those antibodies. And if they're there, they tell you, this person has been exposed to this thing in the past. And there are different classes of antibodies, which can tell you whether they were exposed a long time ago or just very recently. So we can use all of the above to work out whether someone's got something, had something, or is at risk of something. And this may be possible to do between you and your husband if you really wanted to. The downside is that these tests, as I say, are not perfect. If enough time has elapsed since you got the infection and the time you take the blood sample, the antibodies sometimes are no longer detectable because their levels have dropped in the blood and the tests can't see them anymore. Um, And they're also quite expensive under certain circumstances. And there are also some charlatans in the market. Be very careful because there are people looking to make a swift buck and they're flogging tests that don't work very well. So be very cautious. If you're going to do this, go and get reputable tests. But uh, do be prepared to pay eye-watering amounts (laughs) because they are quite expensive, some Uh of them. The the safest thing to do if you're going to get a vaccine is to assume that both of you are susceptible, whether you've had this or not, get the vaccine, get both doses of the vaccine if you're on a regimen of vaccine that needs that, and then you have the peace of mind that you've both been protected as well as you possibly can be.
0: Right. Next, we go to Dion and Brakpan. Hello, Dion. Hi, good day. Um, it's Chris, Dion, you're from Brakpan. I'm following NASA and the rover that they've sent through to uh, Mars. Uh, Perseverance. Mm-hmm. Yes, and my question is, just this. How can they communicate so far from Earth? On Earth, you've got these massive satellite dishes, and yet from that little machine or the rover that sends back the signals, it's only those small antennas. What type of frequencies do they use? What type of radio systems do they use for communication between nice. Earth and Mars? Nice. Thank you, Dion. Lovely
1: question. It's all a very clever system. In 2010, a, or 2006, actually, I think, a satellite was deployed around Mars called the MRO, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. And this goes round around Mars with a giant dish pointing at the Earth and another dish pointing at the surface of Mars. And signals which are beamed up from the surface from the rovers are picked up by the MRO and it's a relay station and it then beams them at high power to the Earth. And they're using microwave signals to do this. And so you basically have got a relayed radio signal. So weaker signals sent to the satellite. The satellite then beams it on to us here on Earth. That journey, that round trip, because at certain points, remember, Mars takes two years to go around the sun and the Earth takes only one. So at certain points in its orbit, the Earth and Mars are really close to each other. But at other points in its orbit, Earth and Mars are on opposite sides of the solar system. And... For that reason the journey time between earth and mars for the signals can be really very long 100 million kilometers or so and as a result of that the, the journey time for the signals is 10 to 12 minutes for the instructions so when oh. we watched perseverance touching down we were seeing something that was already 12 minutes old when it got back to earth so when they're all saying yes we've got touchdown actually Perseverance was already rolling around on the surface of Mars. Yeah, I'm here, I'm fine, I'm all right, and sending out tweets and things. But we didn't know for 12 minutes because that's how long it took the radio signals to get back because it's so far that even at the speed of light, which is what those radio signals are, are, are travelling through space at, it still took that long for the signals to get to us.
0: Yes. Wow. Uh, it's been wonderful to see those pictures of what the surface of Mars is. It is looks amazing, like. isn't it? Mm. Just stunning. Mm. Next, we've got Charmaine in Randberg. Afternoon, Charmaine. Hi, Zania. Hi, Doc. I wanted to find out, can one sneeze while they're in deep sleep? Because I just noticed that um, I sneeze a lot when I'm either about to wake up or um, I'm just lightly sleeping, taking a nap. But I sure shouldn't find out, is it possible for one to sneeze when they're in deep sleep? Where are you s- sleeping? <laughs> in a meadow, <laughs> in a bed of, of flowers? Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> Chris?
1: Um, I've definitely woken myself up sleep, sleep, sneezing in the past, but not often. And I did, when I was younger, have a bit more hay fever. So I wouldn't go to sleep in a meadow, definitely not. Mm. Uh, I, I would have suffered if I had. Mm-hmm. So I think it is possible to sneeze in your sleep, but I, I think it doesn't happen quite so often as when you're awake. The thing to bear in mind is, of course, that when you're uh, awake and, and doing things during the day, you're more, no- more likely to encounter pollution than when you've shut yourself off in your bedroom and shut the doors and windows and got the air con on at night time, um, which cleans the air up a bit and also the air's stiller. And especially if you've had a shower before bed, best best thing. If you if you're prone to hay fever and that kind of things, if you are allergies, have a shower just before you go to bed. Because then, when you're laying in bed, all of the the pollen and the dust and the things you're allergic to, which is trapped in your hair and in your in any clothes you've had on during the day, won't then roll into your eyes and nose and mouth overnight, so that you wake up all feeling really groggy and and inflamed the next day, because you'll have washed it all off in the shower. So that's my little tip, but. I I think you can sneeze in your sleep. I've definitely done it myself. I've woken myself up doing it, but it doesn't happen often. So I think it's more of a rarity, probably because we're we're less exposed to allergens at night a bit and also because I think we're a bit less sensitive when we're we're sleeping. All of your respirations are slower. Your nerve responses are a bit slower when you're sleeping. So as a result, um, it's probably a combination of factors as to why it happens less often.
0: Right. So many questions that we can't get to. Another one about the Mars landing. There's a COVID question. So many voice nodes. We'll bank them and save them for next time. How's that? Let's do it. All right. Thank you so much, Chris. Have a great week.
1: Take care. Have a good one. Bye, everyone.